He is risen. You know, this time of year, this Resurrection Sunday, Easter as some call it, it's such a wonderful time, right? Springtime is here. Grass gets greener for those of you that can water your grass without getting tickets. You know, weather heats up a little bit or here in Southern California, an insane amount. You know, but sometimes, right? It gets hot and then cold, whatever, you know. But the best thing about Easter is that this day is the yearly anniversary of hope. You know, when you look around the world today, um, there's a lot going on. And I think all around the world, the one thing people need most is hope. I read a, a blog post by a young lady who was an atheist, and she said this on her blog post. I'm confused. I always believe that science would be the cure-all for my problems, but I don't know if I can keep living without eternal life. I guess I'll have to just find my way myself to make it through this meaningless existence. I wish I knew of someone who could show me the path to eternal life. If science can't provide answers, then who or what can? Doesn't it seem like there's a higher power that gives our life purpose? Well, science says there isn't, so there isn't. Hopeless. And so many in the world today are hopeless. And she said some interesting things there in her blog post, but the one thing that, that I found most interesting is she admits that the one thing that would give her hope would be eternal life if she just knew someone who would show it to her. You know, this morning, it's all about hope. What we celebrate today, what we're gathered here to celebrate, was the very first glimmer that the world ever saw that there could be eternal life for everyone. Because today, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior being raised from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death forever. And that is definitely something we're celebrating. But this morning, to frame this hope, I want to look at some events that happened both before the resurrection and immediately following the resurrection of Christ. Some pre-resurrection commotions, if you will, and some post-resurrection responses from people. You know, the week that led up to the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, there was so much happening that week. You know, Jesus came into Jerusalem and it created a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement. People were excited, there was anticipation, everybody was talking about him. And after his very public death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, which was witnessed by hundreds, nobody can avoid making a decision about Christ. Nobody who had heard the news that this Jesus had rose from the dead could avoid making some kind of choice, some kind of decision on whether or not they believed that he was who he said he was. This morning, many of you possibly in this room or watching online, you're gonna have that same opportunity presented before you. Because when it comes to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's a few different responses people tend to have. One of them is they try and stomp it out. Regardless of the evidence of its historicity, 
They want to stomp out the truth of the resurrection. Some end up checking it out. And that's great, and I encourage you to look at the evidence, to look at the proof, but the day of decision for you, I believe, is today. Today is the day to make a choice on who Jesus is. And some speak it out, right? Because we can't help but share the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives. We can't help but to share the hope that we have through his death and his resurrection. So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. But I wanna start with prayer, if you'll join me, bow our heads, Lord, we thank you. God, we're so thankful, Lord, for your death and resurrection. Lord, we know that your death and resurrection are the very central focus of, of our faith, God. They are the very thing that, that, that made all the difference. Lord, that as you died for our sin, you paid our penalty. You suffered the death penalty that we were due because of our wickedness and our disobedience and our breaking of your law, God, and you paid that price. You wiped the certificate clean, as the word says. But God, you didn't just die. You then rose from the dead three days later, proving that you indeed are God with the authority to do so, proving that you not only defeated death for yourself, but you could defeat death for everyone who would put faith in you. Because God, by rising from the dead, you defeated the very penalty of sin, the permanent physical death that would come upon us. And so Lord, encourage us today, God, as we celebrate your resurrection. God, remind us of all that it means. And for those that may be here in this room and listening online today that don't yet know you, Lord, I pray, God, that today would be their Resurrection Sunday that they would be born again into a saving faith in you, their creator. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 27, if you want to follow along, starting in verse 50. And these are some of the commotions that took place right before the resurrection. It says in Matthew 27, 50, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. So here in these first few verses, we're told of these three commotions that happened when Jesus died on the cross, these three events that took place before his resurrection. And the first one is what I'm calling a ceremonial commotion. It said, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. For those of you that may not know, when it says the curtain of the sanctuary, other translations call this the veil. All right, it was this large curtain, this absolutely enormous curtain that separated inside the Jewish temple the holy place from the holy of holies, where God's presence resided, where the ark was, where the mercy seat was. This curtain, as I mentioned on Friday, was about 60 feet long, 30 feet tall, but here's the, here's the interesting fact, three to four inches thick, right? We have curtains in our houses, little thin flimsy things, right? You gotta get special ones to block the light. Three to four inches thick, this curtain was massive. And tradition tells us that it took 300 men to lift it into place so that it would be secured on the pole, separating the holy place from the most holy place. It was beautiful. 
It was an absolutely beautiful curtain, but it represented the separation between God and man due to sin. And so once per year and only once per year, the high priest in the Jewish faith would go behind that veil. He would go from the holy place into the holy of holies to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. The presence of the veil, the fact that it hung there, the fact that it separated the holy place from the most holy place was, was like a big sign to any and all worshipers that might want to approach Almighty God. It was a sign that said, warning, keep out. No one allowed beyond this point except for that one man, the high priest, and only then once a year. But it tells us when Jesus died on the cross at that veil, that massive curtain was torn, from, torn into from top to bottom. Interesting detail, right? This thing was 30 feet tall, three to four inches thick, and yet it ripped in half from top to bottom. It's in effect if God was saying, come on in, everybody. Everybody is now welcome. Nobody is prevented from coming into my presence anymore. The barrier of sin has been dealt with. It is finished. You are all welcome into my presence. And you know that ceremonial tradition that was a part of the observation of faith there was disrupted by God himself when that veil was torn in two. Now what I found especially interesting, and again this is according to tradition, but it says that the, the, the priests in the temple after that veil was torn in two sewed it back together and rehung it and continued in their, in their, in their ritual observance and their faith practice as usual all the way up until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Tradition says that. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but I just thought, isn't that just like us? Right? God tears down any and all barriers between us and him, right? He does the work. He pays the price. He rips down the barrier, and we want to put it back up. We want to rehang it, so to speak. He wants a relationship with us, his creation. An honest relationship, a vulnerable relationship. He wants a real connection with you. He loves you. But sometimes we instead settle for presenting an outward facade to him. We settle for keeping a veil between us and him. And for some, that veil can be relying on outward ceremony or outward observance or routine in our relationship with him. We think that, that we're gonna make it to heaven, that our relationship with him is right, not because we know him, but you know, because we go to church here and there. Maybe we read our Bible periodically. We might even own a devotional. We've maybe never opened it, but we have one. And we pray. Now those are all important things and good things. You should pray. You should have a Bible. You should come to church and serve and participate. Those are important um, behaviors for a Christian. But some think that doing those things is what makes them right with God. It's been said that there's a lot of people who 
don't know Jesus, aren't Christians, wouldn't consider themselves Christians, but they'll come to church on Easter. And if you're in the room this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't identify as someone who knows God, and you've come this morning, welcome. <laughs> We're so glad you're here today, right? If you're watching us online, you know, and you think you're in the anonymity of your living room, I see you. <laughs> I can't really see you, but welcome. We're glad you're here, right? We're so glad you're here to, to be a part of what's going on today. But please know, please know that attendance in church today doesn't earn your salvation. It doesn't guarantee heaven. Knowing Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior is the only thing that does. And that is why Jesus disrupted the ceremonial observance there tore that veil in two. Today, God is saying to you that he has torn down the curtain of separation between you and him, and he invites you this morning into his presence to be forgiven of sin, to be born again today, and I pray that today you would be resurrected into new life as we celebrate his resurrection this morning. The second commotion that took place when Jesus died on the cross was a, was a seismic commotion. If you look in Matthew 27, verse 51, it says the earth quaked and the rocks were split. You know, earthquakes have a way of getting people's attention, right? How many of you, like me, in the middle of the night, when you wake up right as the earth starts shaking, suddenly become Olympic-level sprinters? <laughs> right? I have never moved as fast and I don't move very fast in general, but when the earth is shaking, wow, does that get my attention. And it's the same with so many people. The earth shakes, and they notice. It's interesting in Jewish writings that we have after the temple was destroyed, they reference some event, some catastrophic event others write about happening to the temple approximately 40 years before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. 70 AD minus approximately 40 years is right about when Jesus was crucified on the cross, when the earth shook, when the veil was torn in two. Now, regardless if that's exactly what they're referring to or not, the point is, is that this earthquake happened and it got people's attention, and I believe God was trying to get the attention of his people to say something is different, something is changing. And I wanna ask you this morning, has your world been shaken recently by something? Maybe you've been shaken by an economic earthquake, right? Times are tough financially and they're getting tougher and you watch the news and there's whispers of recession and all these really scary words that mean we can't afford anything anymore. And it's tough. And the last two years have been tough economically for a lot of people. Maybe you've recently experienced a relational earthquake of some kind as your relationship, maybe your marriage relationship or family relationships or something has been shaken up. Maybe it's been a medical earthquake as you've gotten difficult news about yourself or someone you care about. Will that disturbance bring you closer to the Lord? Will that disturbance make you pay attention to maybe the fact that God is trying to get your attention, 
to let you know that you desperately need him as your savior? God allows disturbances in our lives. He allows it in the lives of his children even to shake things up so that he can get our attention and draw our lives closer to him. The third commotion we read about here is a graveyard commotion, right? Matthew 27, verse 52. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entering, er, entered into the holy city, and appeared to many. It's interesting, just a few days ago, someone texted me, one of our staff members, and said, is Matthew 27 talking about zombie saints? You know, and I think all of the Call of Duty players in the room have been like, this is what we've been training for, <laughs> right? We are ready. Now, if by zombie, you mean a mindless undead monster who's trying to get you, no, <laughs> that's not what's going on here. But yes, it does indicate that this earthquake appears to have opened the tombs of many believers, and these dead believers were raised to life miraculous happening. Now, why did that happen? Why is this detail here? People go, what's the point of that? I think it's a preview of coming attractions. It's a preview of coming attractions because the resurrection of these saints, it demonstrated that not only could Jesus conquer his own death, but Jesus could also conquer the death of every person who believes in him. These ones were the first to experience it, but not the last. In John chapter five, verse 28, it says, do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Now the Bible talks about some will be raised in glorified bodies who are saved and forgiven, and others will be raised into judgment. Which will it be for you this morning? Salvation or judgment? Remember that blog post I referenced earlier where this young woman said, I wish I knew someone who would show me the path to eternal life. Well, you don't have to go very far if you're here this morning listening to this message. My prayer for you today is that you will discover the one who could give you eternal life, Jesus Christ. And so those were the three commotions. But how did people respond to all of this? Jesus died, the earth was shaken, the veil was torn from top to bottom, Jesus rose from the dead and then dead believers rose and started walking around town and it says many, not all of them, but many and people saw them. How did people respond to all of, the, all of this? Well, in Matthew 28 verse one it says this. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. So many earthquakes, right? Because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. Jesus then appears to these ladies and just kind of blows their minds. And then in verse 11, it says, as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. So three responses I want to look at here in these verses. The first one is actually towards the end of those verses, that some people tried to stomp it out. The truth of Jesus' resurrection, they tried to stomp it out. They tried to, to, to put it out like keeping a fire from spreading. The priests were in such denial that Jesus rose again just as he said. They thought, aha, let's get these eyewitnesses, these people who saw things, let's pay them off. Let's bribe them. Let's get them to lie about what happened. And sadly, even eyewitnesses to true events, given enough money, will lie and deny the truth. And that's what took place here. They did so with the very first wrong theory as to what happened with the body of Jesus. Oh, his disciples snuck in and stole it. Now, this theory is a little bit ridiculous for a number of reasons, and, and the first reason is that there was a guard watching the tomb, right? Back in Matthew 27, verse 62, the religious leaders went to Pilate, and they were basically like, hey, Pilate, He's the governor of the place. They said, can you post a guard at the tomb of Jesus? We, we would like you to, to post a guard around them because look, he said he would rise from the dead on the third day and we wanna make sure that, that nobody comes in and steals the body and then goes, hey, look at the tomb, it's empty, he rose. So can you post a guard there? Now, a typical watch of guard at this time was anywhere from four to 16 well-armed, trained soldiers. It wasn't just some dude on the corner, hey, can you keep an eye on the tomb? These were, these were soldiers, these were trained guards. And then the stone itself that was covering the front of the tomb would weigh anywhere from 1.5 to two tons. So it wouldn't have been an easy thing to open this tomb and steal the body. So the fact that this guard was there is one of the first reasons why this story that they snuck in and stole the body is kind of ridiculous. The second reason is we read in the Gospels that the disciples were in no mood to try and you know, go out and do a ninja mission and sneak out and steal the body of Jesus. They were in no frame of mind for that. It actually tells us that during this time, from his crucifixion to the resurrection, they were so scared, they were up in a room behind locked doors, shaking in their boots. The third reason is what they actually told the guards to say. Tell them you were sleeping. Why is that ridiculous? Because guards of the day if they fell asleep on guard duty, they were put to death. It was a death penalty for falling asleep on guard duty, right? Can you imagine if it was a death penalty for falling asleep at school or at work? <laughs> we might not fall asleep so much. 
And so they go, look. And we see that there was a big deal here because the, the, the religious leaders go, look, if anybody asks, if word of this gets to your, the, the governor, your boss, right? They said, look, say, say that the, the body was stolen while you were sleeping, and if he finds out, they specifically said, we will keep you out of trouble. We'll talk to him. Which tells us that they, they knew what they were asking these guards to say. And the fourth reason is even if the disciples did get the courage up to try and sneak out and steal the body, they would have had to make some pretty high stealth checks. They would have had to sneak out, sneak past the guard, roll this stone away from the tomb silently, not make any noise, get the body out without noise. Highly unlikely even if the soldiers were sleeping. Rolling this stone out would have caused enough noise to wake them up. And then who knows what kind of commotion would have happened. And so it's just unlikely. The priests, they wanted to stomp out this news quickly. They wanted to stomp it out right now because they knew once word got out that this man who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Son of God, who said, I'm gonna rise on the third day, once word got out that he rose, it was gonna change everything. Everything would be different. And that's exactly what happened. Word got out, word spread, the eyewitness accounts, the disciples, all of that. And within a few months of Jesus' resurrection, we read that there are thousands that had given their life to Jesus Christ. Thousands. They tried to stomp it out, but it didn't work. And there may be some of you in this room or online, you have been fighting against Jesus Christ for a long time. You have been trying to stomp out the truth of who Jesus is and what he did and what the resurrection means. You have been trying to stomp out the reality of all of that in your life. And yet, you're here today listening to this message. And I pray, I pray that today will be the day you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior because I know he's speaking to your heart even now. The first response, they tried to stomp it out. The second response is some wanted to speak it out, right? We read about those women that came to the tomb early and they saw that the stone had been rolled away and they looked in and they saw that there was no body there. Luke chapter 24, it says that they were perplexed by this. Perplexed, confused, inquiring. Who did this? What happened? Did grave robbers come? Who moved the body? All of that, just going through their minds in a fraction of a second. But it says the angels showed up. Now when you read in the Gospel of Mark, it talks about one angel inside the tomb. You read in the Gospel of Matthew, we read about the one angel outside the tomb sitting on the stone. Then you go into the Gospel of Luke and it mentions both of those angels, that they were both standing there. And the women are told Jesus is not here. He is risen just as he said he would. God is not a liar. God is not a liar. He is trustworthy. So is his word because it's his word. And so their Easter perplexion, I don't know if that's a real word, but their Easter perplexion became their Easter proclamation. Right? They're like, don't stand here, ladies. 
go tell the disciples. And so they, they, they took a look at the tomb, and it says they went with fear and joy to tell the disciples. Verse, or chapter 28, verse 8. They departing quickly with fear and great joy, it says they ran to tell the disciples. You know, celebrating this day, Resurrection Sunday, it's, it's, a, it's a great day. It's an amazing day for us to reflect and remember on this most important life-changing event in, in our lives. But Christians, listen to me. Let's not stay at the empty tomb. Let's not stay at the empty tomb. Enjoy it. Celebrate its meaning. Don't forget it. But believers, you have a message to go and tell the world. You have hope to share. Go and tell the world that Jesus is alive. Will you do that? Will you go and tell? Will you go speak it out? The angel said to these women, go quickly and tell. Tell others about what has happened. Tell others about what you've seen. Tell others about what you've experienced. Tell others that your life has changed. Tell them about the empty tomb, yes. Tell them about the cross, yes. Tell them about how all of that leads to a full life, yes. But tell them that hope is available. Tell them that Jesus is alive. And so the third response, some tried to stomp it out, some spoke it out, is that some checked it out. You know, there may be some of you here today as I mentioned earlier, you may be here in the room or watching, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have never committed your life to him. You've never fully surrendered yourself and said, God, I believe that you're God. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe your sacrifice pays the price for my wickedness, and so, so I'm, I'm asking in faith, God, to, 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 to I want to receive that, apply that sacrifice to my life. Be my Lord, be my Savior, save me now. If you've never done that, maybe you're just here and you're just a bit curious as to what evidence there is for any of this. Some of Jesus' own disciples had the same issue. You're in good company. You know, it says when the women showed up to the tomb, they were told by the angels to go tell the disciples the tomb was empty. We read in the Gospels that it says that the disciples dismissed them at first. The women show up. Guys! The tomb's empty. <laughs> Whatever, ladies. Whatever. John, the apostle, the one he says whom Jesus loved, he actually saw Jesus die on the cross as he was there with Jesus' mother. People of that time were familiar, were familiar with crucifixion and how, how horribly brutalizing it was, how horrific it was, right? And he had watched Jesus nailed to the cross and he had watched Jesus bleeding there up on the cross. John knew, I'm sure he would know, nobody survives crucifixion, it is horrible. And yet him and Peter said, let's go check it out. And they ran to the tomb and they look in the tomb and it tells us that, that they looked in and they saw the burial clothes that Jesus was wrapped in. But they didn't just see him tossed into the corner, right? Important detail. 
They looked in and they saw the linens and, and the linens that they were wrapped in, it was like being wrapped in a mummy, right? They would wrap all the limbs individually, then they'd wrap the whole body and then they would wrap the head separately. And it says they looked in and when they looked in, they saw the, the, the clothes lying there, but the original language, the Greek, indicates that they saw the clothes neatly lying there as if his body just passed through them and they just, and they found the headscarf folded up to the side neatly. If someone had stole the body and was trying to get out of there quickly, they wouldn't have took time to, wait, hold on, I know the guards are outside, but, but come on, bro, you gotta make the bed. No, they just, woo, they would have scooted right out of there if they were trying to steal the body. But they found the clothes lying there and it says when John saw that, he believed. We read a story about two of the disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus on the day of resurrection. And it says a man appeared to them and he's like, why are you guys so bummed out? This is the modern translation. Why are you so bummed out? And they're like, haven't you heard? How, how could you not hear what has happened in Jerusalem today, right? Jesus was crucified. And this man started going through the scriptures with them saying, well look, scripture said that the Messiah had to die. And then their eyes were opened And it says that Jesus said, look at my hands and my feet. Touch me and see, I am flesh and bone. And they believed. That same night, gospels tell us that the disciples were gathered behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus appeared to them and it says that he showed them his hands and his side. Thomas, one of the disciples, he wasn't there for that special moment, right? And so the other disciples tell Thomas, we saw Jesus, we saw him, he's alive. We saw the the marks in his hands, we saw the, the mark on his side. And Thomas said, you know what, I don't believe it. If I can't see the marks of the nails in his hands and I put my finger into the mark of the nails, I will never believe. And then one of the greatest acts of graciousness, I think, ever, Jesus shows up to him. Says, here I am, Thomas. Reach out your hand, it says, and put it into my side. Jesus said, don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus said something very interesting to Thomas in this moment. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen. That's us. That's you, that's me. We haven't seen Jesus bodily, physically. We we haven't had the opportunity like Thomas to put our hand into the wound on the side. But we can check out the evidence. The evidence available to us today, the overwhelming evidence that Jesus truly did live, that he did die, and that he was resurrected. And many of us have checked all that, and because we did, we have come to believing in him as God and Savior. We have come to believing in him and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And there have been many others that have done the same exact thing. One great example is a man named Lee Strobel. He was an investigative legal reporter for the Chicago Tribune, a devout atheist, and he said this, I had seen plenty of dead bodies as a reporter for the Chicago Tribune but I've never seen a single one come back to life. That's why I was very skeptical about Easter, until my agnostic wife's conversion to Christianity prompted me to spend two years investigating the historical evidence for the resurrection. What I encountered turned me from atheism to faith, and what I've learned since then has only cemented that decision. 
He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. If you're checking things out, I encourage you to get the book. If you're serious about reading it, I'll buy it for you. Because as this man went through trying to prove that the resurrection didn't happen, that Jesus was false, what he found is that the evidence overwhelmingly pointed to the fact that it was all true. There was a professor named Thomas Arnold. He's the author of a famous historical book called The History of Rome. And he was once chair of modern history at Oxford University. And in his time, he was considered an expert in determining historical facts. And he said this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other and ancient times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about those times. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. And then another English scholar named Brooke Foss Westcott said, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have possibly suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of the resurrection. And so, if you're a skeptic this morning and you're here and you're checking it out, I respect that. But I challenge you to check it out, to look into it, because literally your eternal life depends on it. If you want resources, more resources, other books and stuff, please come up and see me after service. I will get those resources to you. If you're online, let us know in the chat. Because the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is provable. And I plead with you to not walk away from the empty tomb, refusing to look at the evidence. Really, those that do that, that walk away and refuse to check it out and look into it, cannot claim that Jesus isn't who he says he is and cannot claim that Jesus didn't do what he said he did. You can't claim it if you won't look at the evidence. Instead, if you walk away from the empty tomb and you don't know Jesus today and you walk away from today and you're like, I'm not even gonna look into the evidence, then your refusal to look at the evidence simply confirms what the Bible already suggests about people who receive Jesus, or refuse Jesus Christ. That it's not about whether the Bible's claims are true. It's not about whether there's evidence for it. It's really about the fact that you wanna remain in your sin. You don't wanna be accountable to a holy and a righteous God. That's really what it's about if you refuse to look at the evidence. You know, if you're right about Jesus and I'm wrong, you say, There's, this resurrection didn't happen, none of this is true, and we simply both go on about our lives. I live as a Christian, as a pastor, as a preacher, and you live doing whatever the heck you want, and we both die, and we just die to nothingness. Well, guess what? Neither one of us loses. I lived the life I wanted, you lived the life you wanted. But if what I'm sharing is true, and you're wrong about Jesus, and we both go on about our lives, and we both die, for you, it'll mean a forever in hell. A forever in hell, paying the price for your own sins under the full judgment of a holy, 
just and almighty God. But that's not what God wants for you this morning. That's not what God wants for you. That's why he came to this earth. That's why he lived a perfect life. That's why he died on the cross in your place. That's why he rose from the dead so that through him you can be forgiven of your sin. Through him you can be set free from the power of sin and death. Through him you can have a restored relationship with your creator. Transformed. Born again. Possessing the hope the hope of and the hope of one day living the truth of eternal life in heaven with your creator. And so some wanted to stomp out the truth, some spoke out the truth, and some were just in that place of checking out the truth. I wonder which one are you this morning? I would speculate that most of you here in the room and online are believers, Christians, living under the grace of God, you serve him, you wanna speak it out, and I encourage you to do that. Don't be ashamed to speak out the truth of Jesus. Don't be ashamed to say, you, I believe in him, you can too. He saved me, he can save you. Don't be ashamed to speak it out. Some here this morning, you don't know Jesus, but I'll tell you this, he knows you. He created you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every fiber of your being. He knows everything you've done, everything you've ever done, and everything you ever will do. He's not surprised. And yet he still died for you. He still rose from the dead so that you could have new life. And maybe you've already checked out the evidence, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Today is the day of your salvation. Today. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity right now to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now there may be others here, maybe you've been going to church, maybe you've been doing the Christian thing, right? You've been you know, doing all the outward stuff, but you've been relying on your ceremony, you've been relying on your, your activity for your salvation. But you've never actually turned from your sin and committed your life to Christ. There is no better place and there is no better time than right now to make that decision to surrender to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much for your death on the cross and we thank you, Lord, for your resurrection. God, this one historical event singularly is the turning point in the lives of thousands, the lives of millions. God, your word is proven accurate, reliable, above and beyond every other book that exists. The claims of the Bible, Lord, are verifiable, including the prophecies about who you were, who you would be, and what you would do, including the eyewitness accounts, including the testimonies written through the New Testament about what you did and what that means for us. And so, Lord, as we are here as the body of Christ today, Lord, the believers here to celebrate your resurrection, God, we pray, Lord, that, that there would just be a, a renewal in our passion for you and a renewal in our excitement to tell others about you, to go quickly and to tell people that Jesus is alive, Lord. 
Those of us that have been involved in that already, God, we pray, Lord, that that just keeps going and keeps flowing, Lord, that people would come to know you as their Lord and Savior. God, for those here this morning, maybe in this room and online, God, for whatever reason, whether they came to, to, to make a family member happy or maybe they're here on their own, Lord, or maybe they're watching in anonymity, Lord, I know that you are speaking to them directly and you have been all morning. God, that the reality of who you are, the reality of the fact that they have sinned against you, the reality of the fact that, Lord, without you, they will pay the, the price. They will, they will suffer the judgment for sinning against you, God. But with you, as their Lord and Savior, Lord, they would be spared from that and set free from the control and the power of sin and death, Lord. That they would have the hope that when they would die in this world, that they would be resurrected into a glorified body into paradise, heaven with you, God. And so while we're praying with all heads bowed and eyes closed, both in this room and online, if God has been speaking to you this morning, this Resurrection Sunday about your need to be saved, about your need to have new life. If God has been speaking to you about what he's done, if he has been shaking up your world to get your attention and he has it this morning, and you hear his voice right now speaking to you saying, I love you, I died for you, I want to save you. I want to restore my relationship to you. And if you want to receive that this morning, just where you're seated, all heads bowed, eyes closed. If you want to receive Jesus this morning, I just want you to raise your hand and say, yes, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior this morning. If you're online and God is speaking to you, obviously I can't see you. I'm staring at a camera. But please, in the chat, let us know that I would like to receive Jesus this morning. Anybody in this room or online, God died for you, that you would have a new life. You can receive that today. Father God, we lift up everybody to you that needs you. I pray, God, that those, even in the quietness of their own heart, that would confess that they believe that you are God, that they believe that you died for them, they believe that you rose from the dead, and that through that faith in that, Lord, that they can be saved and given new life, Lord. I pray, God, that those would receive you this morning. And I pray, God, as your Holy Spirit would fall upon them and indwell them, and seal them with the Holy Spirit of promise, God, that their lives would be changed forever for you. Lord God, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for the work you did on our behalf because, Lord, we couldn't do it ourselves. And so, Lord, we receive what you have for us. We receive the, the effect of your death and we receive the power of your resurrection, Lord, to live as new people. And God, we look forward to the day when we get to go home to be with you in glorified bodies in heaven forever, Lord. Hallelujah, we can't wait. But Lord, in the meantime, 
Help us through your power and your teaching and, and, and everything you do in our lives to live the way you want us to live, to be people that shine the glory and the light of the gospel. And Lord, may we be people who tell others about you. We thank you, Lord. We love you so much. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.